Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, welcome to another episode of Not Overthinking. Ali, how are you doing this week? I'm doing absolutely fantastically, thank you very much for asking. Um, have I done anything, anything interesting this week? I don't think I have. Just been standard life at work, coming back home, filming videos, the usual hustle, the usual grind. What about you? It's been an it's been an emotionally taxing week for me actually. Oh, why is that? We're we're in the process of like finalizing fundraising for for the startup, and yeah, it's just a very emotionally laborious process and uh, difficult decisions and stuff like that. Why is it emotionally laborious? <laughs> what is difficult about asking people for money? Um, it's just that yeah, it's it's the classic problem of like it's not clear. It, it's it's not it's not a no brainer what the right option is. And there's like pros, there's like a few options and there's pros and cons to each. And there are people and personal relationships involved in each. And it's like, you have to weigh all these things up and then make a decision. And yeah, I just worry that like, whatever decision, you know, even though this is like a win-win, I think we're very fortunate and we have a lot of good options. It feels, it sometimes feels like, oh yeah, no matter what decision we're going to make, we're going to like think about, the opportunity cost and think, oh man, what if, what if we'd gone with the other one or something, you know, this kind of thing. Okay. And how um, much money have you raised so far? Are you comfortable with sharing that information publicly? Uh, we, no, no, we can talk about that kind of stuff later. I think it's not really, uh, yeah. Wait, why are you cagey about how much money you've raised? Sorry? Why are you cagey about how much money you've raised? I, just, I thought you were all about financial transparency and all that stuff. I'm all about financial transparency. I'm ha- I'll be happy to talk about this after we actually wrap up the round, but we're, in, we're still in the process. So, Okay, so it would be poor form for you to sort of count the chickens before the eggs are hatched. Yes. In a way. Okay, so once you've got the money in the bank account, then we can talk in great deal in great detail about how much money your startup has raised. I'll have to think about it. <laughs> okay, I think that would be an interesting topic for another time. But I yeah. think you had an idea of what you want to talk about this week. Uh, yeah, so this week, here's one thing I've been thinking about a lot. And uh, I think it's, it's probably best summed up by probably the phrase invisible shackles, I would say. I think... I think I've certainly been going through life over the past couple of decades or whatever, bound by various invisible chains that I'm not really aware of. And I think that a big part of the process of personal growth and personal development over the past few years um, and has, has been like noticing different sets of invisible chains that I'm wearing and sort of taking them off, you know? And Mm. I think like, it's one of the best feelings when you find one of these and you're like, whoa, <laughs> what's that doing there? <laughs> you know? So I'll give you a couple of examples. It'll be interesting to see um, whether this idea sort of makes sense to you. So um, maybe about a year ago, I discovered that having a light lunch every day actually makes me significantly happier than having a heavy lunch. And, you know, for the past two decades or whatever, my my sort of conception of what it meant to have lunch was like, you know, lunch is a proper meal. You have a hot cooked thing, <laughs> probably with some oil in it, 
ideally with some meat in there. <laughs> and that is what lunch is. And so, you know, I'd, 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 you know well, when I had a background, had a real job or whatever, I'd so go out to the local market, we'd all go there for lunch. And there's a bunch of options. And I'd go for like the Indian curry thing, you know, very heavy, oily, meaty kind of lunch or go for something like that. And then about a year ago, I realized, whoa, let me try, let me try this salad thing. And all these uh, <laughs> all these cool white folk are having salad for lunch. <laughs> let me let me try this, and it was great. And I realized that like eating, yeah, being really full and eating like oily, heavy food just makes me quite tired and lethargic, and makes me feel a bit unpleasant. And I feel amazing after having like a light salad for lunch every day. And I started doing that, and that's been a massive boost in my life. Another example, which is more recent, probably started noticing this about three weeks ago, is that I spend I spend an enormous amount of time in coffee shops because that's often where I do a lot of my work these days. Um, and so I go to go to coffee shop. I order like a, a latte or a mocha. I had, a, I had a phase where I was ordering white Americanos. Um, but I've realized recently that most of the time I actually prefer tea. Most of the time I don't want some like heavy coffee thing. I just want like a light tea to sort of sip on while I do my work. And I think I would previously I was sort of caught up in the ritual of like, oh, I'm in a coffee shop. I need to order coffee and I need to like sit down with a latte. You know, this was like a strange ritual thing for me. Okay. Um, and I didn't really like it. It wasn't really making me that happy. <laughs> but you thought you would do the latte thing anyway, just because it's the thing that you did in a coffee shop. Well, it's like, yeah, I'm in a coffee shop. Ladies just ask me what I want. Oh, I'll have a latte, please. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Whereas, uh, yeah, I just, I realized, wow, I, yeah, I actually don't really like that that much. And I, I like tea a lot more. And so now I've, I've started, you know, ordering tea at coffee shops. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> revolutionary. It is. And these are, uh, these are both like fairly trivial examples, but there, there's others that like, I think I have noticed over the past few years, but it'd be good to hear it. Do you, do you understand what I mean by these, these like random things and ways that you live your life for no reason at all that aren't really serving you very well, but it's, it's hard to notice that actually, you know, I feel bad after a heavy lunch. It, it's, it's hard to notice that and, and do something about it. Yeah, uh, I know exactly what you mean. I, I wonder if invisible shackles is, is the way of describing this because I feel like I have read about this sort of thing before, almost like the default scripts that we have in our heads just because it's the way we were raised. And it kind of, it's kind of linked to this idea of, um, you know, everyone gives you the advice that you should be yourself, but actually who you are is just a series of accidents over your upbringing that you've had really no control over. And so I guess you and I are big fans of the choose yourself movement, where it's like, actually, you know what, I'm going to make a conscious decision as to the sort of person I want to be like. I'm not necessarily just going to, you know, going to be low energy and unconfident just because that's what I've always been. I have the option of not being that way yeah on on the note of light lunches i I magically discovered this like three weeks ago after you pointed it out over dinner you're like oh my god light lunch is the best thing ever um i think i might even mention it in last week's podcast yeah (laughs) i know i think you milked it in an email newsletter oh my god siri has just been recording absolutely everything we've been saying and it actually got most of the transcription right anyway Um, uh yeah yeah. i mentioned it in an email newsletter and then uh i was in i was in edinburgh this weekend uh staying with my friend callum and callum has been doing this light lunch thing for years where he just has a cheese sandwich, a ham sandwich, and a carrot for lunch every single day, 364 days a year. Christmas Day is the only day he does not have his cheese and (laughs) ham sandwich with a carrot. And he was really annoyed. He was like, look, bro, (laughs) I've been having this light lunch thing for the last six years. (laughs) Why has this suddenly been a revelation to you? (laughs) And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. You have been doing light lunches. Because prior to seeing Callum and the way that Callum lives his life, I was also big on like, you know, if if a meal doesn't have meat in it, it's not really a meal. Yeah. Because then Callum would be like, why don't you just get a sandwich from M&S? And be like, you know, because they're not halal. He was like, 
why don't you get a vegetarian sandwich from M&S? I was like, whoa. <laughs> no way. Hold up, hold up. <laughs> because you say I can get a cheese plowman sandwich and that would be a solid meal in itself. And he was yeah. like, yeah, why does a meal need to have meat in it? And that just completely blew my mind. I was like, oh my God, this has completely changed the game. There's a few other areas in which I think these sorts of invisible shackles, default processes do exist. Um, actually, on, on, on the coffee shop note, Back in the day, like in, in like first and second year of med school, when I used to go to coffee shops and things, I would be ordering a hot chocolate or a mocha. And it would just be, you know, you know I, I quite liked, enjoy, I, I quite, quite enjoyed those. And then one time I was hanging out with a friend and he ordered a latte and I was like, oh, right, that, that guy's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and then from that point on, I started like training myself to enjoy lattes. And then like two years later, when I had another coffee with him at the same coffee shop, Fitzbilly's in Cambridge, he ordered a flat white and I was like, damn. Oh, <laughs> it changed the game. <laughs> exactly. And then I started drinking flat whites for about a year. And, and now I've gone back to the latte and I think the latte is like a good, a good kind of middle ground. But I wonder what other examples there are of these invisible shackles, default processes in non-trivial domains. I think like, yeah, I think a big part, a, a big sort of category for me is sort of, uh, yeah, stuff that's sort of specific to, you know, Pakistani or Desi culture, which is sort of how we've grown up, right? And I think I think uh, one of the big differences between sort of uh, Indian Pakistani culture and, for example, you know, Brit English British culture or whatever, is that I think social ties uh, for brown people extend a lot further, and that also means that uh, the sort of so the the feeling of social obligations also extends a lot further. And this is something that my mom and I talk about fairly often these days, where. Um, you know, I feel like over, you know, when I was growing up and stuff, there were various sort of people who, um, you know, we used to hang out with or whatever, um, at, at least in large part out of like social obligation. And looking back, like there were you know, plenty of people who, I don't know, I didn't, I didn't feel like we really, you know, enjoyed spending time with them that much. And likewise, I didn't, I didn't feel like they really enjoyed spending that much time with, with us either. But because of this like social obligation thing, uh, it was like, oh, you know, we should, we have to go to their house because they've invited us or whatever. Or like, oh, it's so-and-so's like wedding. Uh, yeah, we, we were talking to like a, another cousin of ours recently and they were saying that, you know, they want to have like a really small wedding, but, you know, because of like family and stuff, they're going to have to end up inviting a bunch of people, uh, even if they don't really know them or care about them, just because these people have like invited them to the wedding. And so th there's a lot of these like social obligations things where it's like, oh, we have to hang out with them because they've invited us or we have to invite them because, you know, to our wedding or something because they invited us, you know, 10 years ago, even if you don't really necessarily like these people that much or or vice versa and so i think i think like being more choosy about like who who to engage in with the in these social contracts with is something that i've been thinking about a lot recently where it's like actually it, it's perfectly acceptable for me to say that you know we see this we see so and so people like once or twice a year i don't get i don't really get much value out of it i don't think they get much much value out of it like there's no point in me sort of keeping this thing alive just out of this sort of social obligation thing hmm. do you know what i mean i kind of know what you mean i'm not sure i fully agree so firstly for the record um a lot of white people have existed i have this exact same structure of social obligations it's just that from what i've seen it, it kind of extends to first cousins and that it stops at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, What I'm saying is the like, brown yeah. people extend it's a lot It's like second cousin, third cousins, family, yeah. friends, this, that, and the other. Yeah. And a lot of my white friends who are now in the process of getting married also have this kind of guest list that's already, half of it has been preset. 
And because in general, white people tend to have fewer people at their weddings than brown people do. They're also like, oh, damn, <laughs> you know, after all the social obligations are taken care of, I can only invite 20 of my friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that becomes a huge political nightmare <laughs> as to who you invite, which is why, you know, having a wedding in Malawi <laughs> seems to be the ideal solution. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. My friend really nailed that one. Um, but on the note of social obligations, I mean, I think there is value to be had in maintaining in, in putting a modicum of effort in to maintain existing relationships purely because they are existing relationships. Let's say you've been, let's say you've got a university friend that you were kind of lived with for about five years and you don't really see each other and stuff. It, it doesn't take very much effort to maybe every Christmas send him a Christmas card. And that is, you know, a five minute activity that, you know, results in a relationship continuing for the next 30 years plus. And let's say further down the line, you happen to then move to the same city. At that point, you've got that friendship that you can rekindle. And that's a lot harder to do when you've completely tied off the contact. No, no, I, buy, I back that. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting at all that, like, it's all or nothing, you know. Okay. You're allowed five friends and that's it. You can't talk to anyone. I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm just saying that, yeah, you know, I think in the situation that you've just brought up where, like, you have sort of, like, a distant university friend and it's worth, you know following them on Instagram, liking their pics occasionally, occasionally like replying to their story or something if you think it's cool. That's, that's basically what you're saying. That's right? the 21st century version of sending them a Christmas card. Yeah, 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 exactly. And I think that's great. But I think there are also plenty of situations where, um, you know, not genuinely neither party seems particularly interested in maintaining the thing. And there's no like, yeah, I think there are situations where, in the example you gave, the the level of contact is like proportional to like the level of actual investment where it's like, you know, you kind of know each other, you kind of like each other, but you know, you, you haven't hung out that much. And so, you know, you exchange a Christmas card once a year, but I think there are also situations that people end up in where the level of, of sort of investment is uh, the level of like emotional investment is extremely low. Like neither party really cares that much about the other one. And yet the level of like physical investment is disproportionately higher where it's like, you know, I have to invite them to my wedding because they invited us to theirs, even though like we don't really talk. Yeah. So this kind of makes me think of um, this, uh, a concept that I first came across via my new friend, Derek Sivers, who's uh, a fantastic guy, sivers.org. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. He's got a great blog and a good book. Uh, and that's this idea of hell yeah or no, which is essentially the idea that, you know, at some point in life where your um, sort of inbound inbound requests for your time and attention exceed the amount of time and attention you're willing to allocate at that point you have a philosophy that either that something is a no unless i think it's a hell yeah so unless you're super super keen about it then it ends up being a no and the way that he i think the example that he used was he you know some friend invited him to some conference in australia he lived, he lived in america at the time or singapore or something a conference in australia like six months further down like down the line and at that point it was like okay yeah i guess i guess so why not then as it got to the time, he realized, oh, no, I shouldn't. I, that really wasn't hell yeah. I, sh I, should, I should have completely said no to this and felt the sense of obligation having made that commitment in advance. And I think that's sort of what you're sort of uh, loosely what you're getting at. Uh, yeah, I, I'm actually not really getting at the specifics about the social obligation thing. I'm, I'm just saying that like understanding and seeing this sort of social obligation dynamic is one of the ways is one of like the invisible shackles that I think I've grown up with. And I'm starting to sort of uh, think more intentionally about. Okay. Yeah. No, I see your point. Like as a, any, an example of an invisible shackle as yeah. opposed to just a, an issue. In itself. Yeah. 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 Just as an example of an invisible shackle where it's like, Oh, you know, I, I could choose just not to go to their house or something and that'll be absolutely fine. I think the main invisible shackle for me now that I kind of think back is when I first read the four hour work week and, oh, here we go. <laughs> and came across the, the, the parable of the Mexican of the Mexican fisherman, 
which uh, I'm going to find on the internet and read out for our listeners because I don't think anyone, I don't, I don't think everyone is familiar with this, and I think it's worth revisiting even if it's not the case. Okay, so here it goes. An American investment banker was taking a much-needed vacation in a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. The boat had several large fresh fish in it. The investment banker was impressed by the quality of the fish and asked the Mexican how long it took to catch them. The Mexican, the Mexican replied, only a little while. The banker then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The Mexican fisherman replied that he had enough to support, to support his family's immediate needs. The American then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman replied, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siesta with my wife, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play the guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. The investment banker scoffed, I'm an Ivy League MBA and I could help you. You could spend more time fishing and with the proceeds buy a bigger boat. And with the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats until eventually you would have a whole fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to the middleman, you could sell directly to the processor, eventually opening up your own cannery. You could control the product, processing, and distribution. Then he added, of course, you would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, where you would run your growing enterprise. The Mexican fisherman asks, but senor, how long will this all take? To which the American replied, 15 to 20 years. But what then, asks the Mexican. The American laughed and said, that's the best part. When the time is right for you, uh, when the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich. You could make millions. Millions, senor. Then what? To which the investment banker replied, then you would retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your, little, uh, play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife and stroll into the village in the evenings where you could sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. And I first read this in the four hour work week. And that was like one of the paradigm shifting moments of my life where I was like, oh my God, yeah, like yeah. this script that I'd just been subconsciously following that, you know, get a job, you know, go to school, get good grades, get to a good university, get a decent job, make money, sort of like loosely retire <laughs> further down the line. Yeah. Renovate your kitchen when you're 30 kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. All, you know? all, all of that sort of stuff um, was just completely unnecessary and that there was an alternative way of living. Yeah. And that was the main idea that I got from the rest of the book. And I say that that's the book that most changed my life because that completely changed the, traje the trajectory of where I was heading. It made me much more interested in actively doing the whole entrepreneurship thing because I saw the value of, you know, work being like this optional thing rather than just this thing that you did. Equally, there's another book called Your Money or Your Life, which again kind of flipped the script um, and made the point that actually kind of almost using the phrase invisible shackles, where it talks about how like work and employment S society feeds us this myth that there there is more to work than just making money that work is actually about you know contribution and about fulfillment and about bonding with your work colleagues and this that and the other and that there are so many social benefits to work other than just making money and the point that this book makes is that actually you can get every single one of those benefits outside of work by like volunteering at your local church or doing other things like that or just having more time to hang out with your family your friends and your kids you don't need to do the work for that. And in fact, it, it, it argues very convincingly that the only point of work is the money part. And therefore, if we split the money from the work bit, we realize that actually in an ideal world, I wouldn't need to quote work for my money. I would spend that time volunteering at the church and stuff. And then it tells us that essentially all, we, all we're going to work for is to make money. And if you don't need to do that, or if you built businesses and stuff that mean you don't need to do that anymore or whatever, you can choose to opt out of the work thing and spend your time in the ways you want to spend it while still also having all this fulfillment stuff. So that kind of changed the game for me as well when, because I'd fully just bought into this notion that, you know, work was fulfilling yeah. 
in itself. So you're saying the, the invisible shackle here was like the, the broad life script of like, do this, then do this, then do this, then do this. And if you do all the right things, then you'll be like, I don't know, 40 years old with like a, a nice detached house and a family of and two kids and a dog and stuff. Yeah, very much so. And I think that's... Yeah, I, I, I think yeah. that's a huge invisible shackle. Yeah. And I, and, and I think even now with our mum, that is the sort of invisible shackle that her kind of script just seems, seems, seems to operate on. And having, at least the way I think of it, having been enlightened by all these various things, I just... <laughs> all right, I, mate, steady on. <laughs> I, I find it almost laughable that she still follows, follows the script and kind of espouses, espouses me to follow the script. I don't, I don't no, know if she no, espouses no. you to follow the script um, in the same way. I think she's more hands-off with me because I'm not, not in the medical profession. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I still, I, th I still think for a parent... The right move is maybe to just is to perpetuate the scripts, you know, <laughs> like if the kid wants to break the script, they'll do it on their own. Mm. <laughs> but if the kid isn't isn't like fully bought into breaking the script and the parent is like, that man, it's all good. Do whatever you want, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> it could end badly is what I'm saying. And I, I think for a parent, you know, you, you could do a lot worse than uh, perpetuate the script. And yeah. like ultimately the kids want to if the kid wants to break the script, they will break the script. And, you know, <laughs> the parental influence should not be the deciding factor in, uh, as to whether oh, God, they do yeah. that. I mean, yeah, I fully agree. Like, I don't hold anything against our mom for, you know, perpetuating the script. I recognize that it is the, really the only viable strategy as a parent. Um, but equally, it's very much an invisible shackle until the point where it becomes visible. And then you're like, oh, okay, hang on. Yeah. Now, yeah. suddenly the world sort of makes sense in this different yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like Neo Matrix type yeah. <laughs> situation that, oh, my God, I don't, I don't need to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I was having an interesting conversation with a friend of mine, uh, you know him, Adrian, uh, my, my friend from, from uni. Uh, and I've always seen him as someone who is very, who, who doesn't have any shackles. Like he truly seems to live life completely free of any kinds of shackles. And I, you know, I, when I, I sort of spent time with various parts of his family and stuff. And, and it, it seems like they all live a very unshackled life in general. And I was sort of talking to him about this and trying to understand how things ended up that way. And I, and, the, and there was a good metaphor that we ended up sort of arriving at, which was that I, I think I said something along the lines of, you know, you seem to do everything kind of outside of the box. And, you know, his parents have just, uh, you know, left their jobs for a year to go on a gap year in Japan where they've just been like living on a farm and doing some farming or something and stuff like that. And obviously it, it takes an immense amount of privilege to do that. But I think plenty of people have that privilege but they wouldn't do something like that um, because it would just be weird, right? And so I, I feel like Adrian and a lot of his family are very shackle-free. And I, I, we were talking about this. And he said, he said something really interesting, which was actually that it's not that he is living particularly out of the box with regards to his own upbringing. It's just that so many different people in his family have just done so many random things that the the box that he's grown up in is just quite a big box. And so he's, you know, compared to like a normal person, you know, most people that we know, Adrian is probably living quite outside of the box, but compared to the box he's grown up in, he might be on the edge of the box or something. He's probably still within the box. And so he's saying that like, just by the diversity of life scripts that he's been exposed to growing up, you know, through his family and friends and moving around and things like that, his box is actually just quite big and say so he's still probably in the box. And so I think like the most useful thing 
and that, I, that I've also found for like noticing invisible shackles is spending time with people who are playing different games, playing by different live scripts, have very different upbringings and stuff like that. Mm. And then you can sort of look at them and see like, whoa, that wouldn't happen. You know, I wouldn't think <laughs> of doing that. alternative, man. Yeah, that's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So about why didn't, it's not about, here it is. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> it's not about thinking outside of the box. About it's about widening the box. The box. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> I think you've got it. Okay, so that's box for your idea. So um, there's a podcast that I listen to fairly regularly called uh, Deviate by Rolf Potts. He is a travel writer. He wrote a book called Vagabonding about 20 years ago in which he went on a long, a sort of like year plus long trip around the world. You know, he could work if he wanted to, but chose not to, which is the definition of a vagabond, just kind of traveling around the world. And at that at the time, this wasn't a very mainstream thing to do. And his book sort of brought it out into the mainstream-ish. Um, and there was an interview with, with a guy who lived in Japan for like 23 years. And this guy had written these like two books about living in Japan. One was like a beginner's guide to Japan. And the other one, one was like, just you know, Japan 23 years in. And what he was saying is that he, he realized just how many, like in a way, how many different life scripts, how some some Japanese people just followed an inherently different life script. So the example that he gave was when it comes to the field of competitive sports, um, apparently in like Japanese culture and things with the, the, the way the sporting scene is set up, you're not really trying to win. You're, you're trying to like, you know, have a good experience overall. And if a match results in a draw, then that's like a really ideal, ideal like scenario. And so there was some Japanese volleyball tournament or something and some coach was brought in from the US and he made his team win, like, you know, win all their games and win the trophy at the end. And then he got fired subsequently because and he was like, what? But I've, I've won all your games. And they were like, yeah, exactly. It's not about winning. It's about having fun. Wait, for real. <laughs> yeah. So this is like a professional like volleyball thing. Yeah. In Japan. Yeah. Professional volleyball thing where the objective was not to win the object like or like the in, the implicit objective was to kind of let everyone have a have kind of a good time oh wow and he was and, he, and this guy was saying that when i heard about that that was just like damn that blew my mind because yeah. it's just completely different to the life script that we we just implicitly follow even though we never really specifically talk about it yeah i mean yeah that one's so invisible that it's like you know it, it almost doesn't doesn't add up that you're saying it's a volleyball tournament and the goal isn't to win you know <laughs> it's like yeah yeah so i think there's just like loads of stuff like that and yeah, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but I, I've reached the conclusion that I, I need to spend at least like two years out of the next six to eight years of my life living in a completely different country with a completely different culture to like Western culture, essentially, because it's really the only way you can notice these invisible. I mean, maybe you'll get lucky sometimes and you'll try a salad for lunch just out you know, completely randomly and you'll be like, whoa, I like lunches. But for the most part, yeah, I think the only way to actually notice these things is to see them in other people and that kind of stuff. Okay, so I agree that that's probably a good idea, but I think a lot of people listening to this, and for, for most people, it's 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 not it's 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 not a trivial thing to go off and live in you know Hong Kong for two years. Fine, yeah. Um, and so one way I think of ex that it's it's very easy to expand the books is just to read books who are written by people who have different life scripts, because that is a an easy way of expanding the box. Like, you know, I don't have to meet Tim Ferriss in person or meet a, you know, nomadic traveler, digital person to appreciate that that is the sort of lifestyle I could be living. I don't have to meet an Olympic powerlifter to figure out, you know, how to, how to eat well. I can read a book written by them or I can listen to podcasts where people who, for example, travel the world using a single bag, how they do it, why they do it, all this sort of stuff. I think that is an easy, low commitment way to expand the box and just generally very, very useful. Yeah, no, I back that. I think that's, that's really good. And yeah, I think like, 
if you're very lucky and you, you work in something like tech and you have the freedom to sort of travel around then it is doable for but like you're a doctor or whatever right if you if you weren't doing the youtube stuff and you know if you weren't planning on taking this year out to do that you couldn't really just move to a random country for a year i mean i could move to a random country but you know to do something medical and preferably english speaking but yeah, so like even as a doctor you have a lot of a lot of flexibility um and in fact most like 80 percent of doctors now between sort of their f2 and f2 year and applying for training end up taking a year out doing various things going to australia is a common destination stuff like that seems to be a slightly different way of life although essentially it is the uk it's not it's not quite as rogue as like going to southeast asia but you know you've got the english thing yeah going on. but I, th- I think on the topic of like books and podcasts as a means of expanding the box i think it's definitely true but and, and actually maybe this is a, a diff- just a difference between you and me when i sort of i find it hard to sort of uh internalize i mean we've talked about this kind of stuff before internalize things that are at a distance so if i read like a tim ferris book about about this thing or whatever and tim ferris is like you know living a different life script or something i would think oh this weird tim ferris guy is doing that all right fine or like for example if at university i wasn't friends with adrian i was you know i just like you know chatted to him once or something then it would be like oh yeah that uh that 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 guy adrian is doing this thing or whatever and i wouldn't really identify enough with myself to feel like it, it wouldn't really expand my box it would be like oh there's there's another box there's another box out there somewhere that someone else is living in um but i i, I find that for myself like it's I, I i need like a a lot more of a close relationship with these other <laughs> scripts <laughs> do, do, do you know what i mean like I, I can read a book that's like that presents a different life script but that will have like 10% of the impact of, for example, being friends with someone who's living a different life. Okay. Script. Probably like 5%. Sure. Um, what I would say to that is that if you were to read 20 of those similar books that have different life scripts, that could probably add up. And so, you know, for example, I've, I've listened to several hundred episodes of the Gary V's podcast by this point or consumed his content to the point where I know everything he says is pretty much second nature. And it's baffling to me how people can not understand that creating content on the internet is just the way you move forward in this attention economy that we live in. Come on. <laughs> it, it just seems absurd. And, so, and that, I think the more I've been exposed to that, the more it's just kind of expanded my books. That, that just becomes the new normal. Equally, listening to hundreds of episodes of the Tim Ferriss show, listening to loads of episodes of like travel writers and things. I agree. It's not as good as having a close friend who is living that script. Um, and I think it's, it's uh, that, that's sort of relevant to how a lot of mine and your friends are now starting up their own podcasts and blogs and thinking about YouTube channels and stuff like that, just because they have close friends who are doing that. Um, but I think, you know, the multiple podcasts, multiple book, exposing yourself to this various stuff is a substitute, is a meaningful substitute. Yeah, yeah, I actually back that. And like, to be honest, I, yeah, I think like the way that's kind of happened in my life is that I sort of started consuming all this like tech and startup stuff from like the age of 16, like mm. reading all these blogs. And that's like the main thing that my sort of main interest, I, I, I suppose. And yeah, just after doing enough of it, you know, quitting your job to start a company is, it just seems like such a standard thing. Yeah, like, gosh, <laughs> I know so many people who've done it who I don't know. And like ha- having that interest meant that I ended up meeting people at university who are also doing it. And so just like, yeah, I, I do agree that just consu- just immersing yourself in in these other things will actually have a significant effect in the end. Yeah, and I think this is something that, uh, you know, m- more people should actively espouse. Like, I think, actually, there's... Uh, everyone says that it's, it's not about reading about the stuff, it's about actually doing the thing. Like, you know, you don't learn entre- entrepreneurship by reading about it. But I think we've actually gone too far the other direction. And now the sorts of emails I get from people are like, oh, have you got any tips for entrepreneurship? And I'm like, 
have you read the four hour work week? And they're like, no, I should probably read. I'm like, come on, man. Look, it's, <laughs> you know, it, it just seems like so obvious that you should just do the basic reading and start consuming, consuming the Kool-Aid, consuming yeah, the content yeah, yeah, yeah. before you then just start kind of going off on your own. And I agree that there, there is some value in just kind of going off on your own, but given that there is so much Kool-Aid, you might as well drink it first and then you can do all the exploring that you like. Yeah, I think like, yeah, once you've sort of immersed yourself in in a different script, you know, for, you know, half a year of reading books and just listening to podcasts or, you know, longer or shorter, whatever, it just makes it easier. It make, it sort of normalizes that script for you. And it's not like, oh, I'm doing this like insane thing by like, you know, starting a YouTube channel or starting a company or something. It's yeah. like, yeah, this is a normal thing. And like, if, if, even just to go back to the food example, if, if I actively wanted to become vegan, I would just, you know, the, the quickest way to do that is just listen to 20 podcasts that are vegan themed and it would then become like so normal and I just gain so much more kind of ideas about the sort of stuff you can eat as a vegan and like this and the other that I just yeah. haven't, I just, I just don't have that, you know, my box isn't expanded enough to include veganism in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and yeah. therefore it seems so out of the box. It's and so weird, broke. yeah. It's like, oh, there's another box over there that Lucia and Ravi are living in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas if I just listen to some podcasts, I could expand my box to then, you know, yeah, in, in, yeah, yeah. include that within it. And actually one thing that I find that any anytime I discover a new sort of blogger on the internet or a new writer that whose stuff resonates with me and I think, oh, this is potentially game changing. I just listen to all of the podcasts they've ever been on. Oh yeah, yeah. And I, I find that's, that's like the best. Yeah, it's it's literally, so <laughs> you know, like a few a few months ago, I, I might have mentioned this in a podcast. I, d- I discovered this guy called Nathan Barry who runs this you know software business called ConvertKit. But turns out in like 2015, he was big on the ebook publishing scene, and he's released 15 episodes where he's talking about publishing ebooks and selling them on Amazon, <laughs> on Kindle, and stuff. And I was like, damn. <laughs> now having listened to all of those, this idea of publishing an ebook and selling it on Kindle yeah. is now within my box, and it seems like a standard thing to do. Yeah. To the point that it's now you know it's now like it's almost like when you're playing a video game and you you've got these trade skills or these different like spells that you can just draw upon in different circumstances when you unlock like the grimoire of intellect or something <laughs> in world of warcraft and now you learn the shadow bolt spell then you're like oh my god i yeah. can use a shadow bolt spell in so many of these yeah, these, yeah, yeah. these different scenarios <laughs> and it's sort of like you're sort of like going around the world and picking up these grimoires yeah. <laughs> to learn different spells <laughs> and break away from the scripts that <laughs> you've initially just been using your wand to do a basic <laughs> flipendo move at a bore at funny hell way, way to make this really cool ali thanks <laughs> thanks for that actually metaphor. on on that note i've i've been thinking a lot about how life is like a video game and there are so many analogies you can make to video games from it but i think that'll be a chat for another time that's interesting yeah to make like a list of ways in which life is a video game yeah another idea that i think uh, i've come across that really resonated with me that sort of related to this is that like i, I can't remember who said it but someone someone uh, someone said something along the lines of the things that like we end up believing it, yeah the, the things you end up believing are mostly down to like the quantity of how much you hear them it's not like mm. if, for example if one person presents an extremely good argument for you to go vegan yeah and like intellectually it's a no-brainer for you to now go vegan yeah that is not going to have as much effect as you just listening to two two people on a vegan podcast you know <laughs> for 10 days straight or something yeah. you know <laughs> like it, it really in a lot of things it's just about the quantity of being exposed to an idea that that actually makes a difference not like not sort of like the quality of, of, of the thing itself. Yeah. Which, which kind of relates to, I think what we discussed in the previous episode about how it, on average it takes someone seven, uh, seven hearings of the same piece of advice in order to actively start to internalize that advice. And is the main reason why I'm totally okay with, as we discussed last time, this whole information arbitrage thing, just repeating key ideas that other people have already hashed out. Because, you know, for some listeners, it's going to be the first time they're hearing it. For others, it's going to be the seventh time they're hearing it. And that might be the point which kind of tips them over the edge, yeah. as it were. 
So I think a, a good general strategy for like expanding the box is like, yeah, just exposing yourself to a diversity of different like life scripts and ideas, essentially. How have you kind of found, yeah, what was your pathway to finding the various other life scripts that you ended up exposing yourself to, like sort of content creation and entrepreneurship? So entrepreneurship was like the Tim Ferriss stuff. Yeah, I think the main, like the first one was, I think, was, I think the tech thing, um, it was in like year eight or something where maybe in year seven, when I was like 11, I was in the computer room and I saw some guy right click view sourcing the Google homepage. Whoa. And I was like, whoa, man, what's he's, he's a hacker. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was a notepad and he was like doing some stuff and typing some stuff. And I was like, damn, that's really cool. Yeah. And because I'm massively identified as a nerd, I was like, damn, you know what? That would be like a really cool thing to do to be like a, a hacker of some sort. Yeah. So then I started kind of exploring the learn coding and that, that sort of thing. And, you know, obviously it was, it was very fledgling back in the, mid 2000s yeah. uh, and like web 2.0 was just coming about and there was all these like sort of all these kind of forums on the internet i think we, we yeah. talked about it before how forums on the internet are a great way to get this diversity of thought yeah um that was like number one and number two was when um two of my friends james and godwin got into the whole pickup artistry thing yeah uh and then i read the game by neil strauss and because i was you know I just got stuff done more so than james and godwin did i ended up consuming about 50 of the pickup artist books at the time and a lot of people in that stuff, like regardless of the whole pickup artisting thing, they all have these semi-alternative lifestyles. And I think one of those was what what got me into the four-hour work week. And so oh, okay. it, yeah, that yeah. ended up being a catalyst for a lot of sort of being exposed to different scripts in my life. But even now, I don't think I expose myself to nearly enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it seems like, I think for, for both you and I, like we both started off in vague tech tech scenes online and kind of have exposed ourselves to adjacent live scripts to that, which is like, you know, content creation, uh, sort of, yeah, entrepreneurship, that kind of yeah, stuff. being a digital nomad, yeah, yeah, the world, yeah. passive income, that whole spiel that you get very much associated with the tech bros. Yeah, exactly. But I, yeah, I, I think you're totally right. I don't, I'm not really, I mean, outside of having a few friends like Adrian who are, being really alternative yeah. <laughs> i'm not really exposing myself to any new life i haven't really exposed myself to any new life scripts for a while and I, I think i need to and i should so one thing i've been thinking recently is that there is a big life script that people a lot of white people that i know seem to follow which is the outdoor activities life script yeah 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 <laughs> so the you know going on a cycling holiday with my family i'm like what the hell is a cycling holiday it's like oh you know we'll we'll drive to but we'll we'll drive to london take our bikes on the eurostar go to paris and just cycle around france wait what that's a, <laughs> that's a thing like where do you sleep oh there's like caravan sites and we carry tents on our back wait, 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 <laughs> and you're doing this for how long for two weeks and this is your idea of fun yeah we've been doing it like twice a year for the like, since i was like five i was like no way <laughs> that is just completely insane yeah and a totally different life script and actually i was talking to callum this weekend in edinburgh like his his dad is full on this outdoor climbing y life script thing yeah so like apparently the things he enjoys doing are long cycles um climbing sailing and his little boats mm. uh and he like chops down trees that are in the middle of the road cuts them up with his chainsaw into firewood and his axe <laughs> hews wood into firewood like puts it by the fire and reads like the washington post or something and that's <laughs> and uh, he, he you know callum's dad used to be an anesthetist he retired recently and for him, apparently, from what I asked Callum, 
work was exclusively a means to an end in order to fund his lifestyle, his outdoor lifestyle, where he could just do more climbing. Oh, okay. Yeah. And so I asked Callum the question that if your dad had won the lottery at the age of 25, would he have still done medicine? And he was like, oh, no, absolutely not. He would spend all of his time doing climbing and hiking and cycling and yeah, all this outdoor yeah. stuff. And I was like, damn, that's just so unusual. That's so interesting that that is a, a viable lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And so now I kind of want to explore the outdoorsy stuff a little bit more. Yeah. I think holiday formats are also like an invisible kind of thing because mm. like you're right i've never really tried an outdoorsy kind of activity sort of holiday mm. i mean I, through your friends i've now experienced the cottage holiday yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going to the lake district or whatever and renting a cottage for a few days through, through our friends tamo sorry through our friends <laughs> like thank you um and that's not something i would have yeah tried before before that and it was it was great and i'm uh, yeah i do it reasonably often now but yeah i think like Trying different kinds of holidays is, is a good good exposure to different experiences. But I guess that's sort of like a very narrow script. It's like a holiday spring script rather than life script. Well, I don't think we've actually come up with any ideas for how to find true, actually novel life scripts. Why does the life script need to be that novel? Okay, fine. Like, no, I, actually, I think it's novel, completely like, fine to expand the box, you know, an inch at a time rather than trying to leapfrog and create a new box. Okay, sure. But like the whole the holiday thing is just a very constrained thing. Like it's like, you know. I mean, not necessarily. If you generally wanted to expand the thing, you could do a, a hiking holiday, for example, which is not really something that we've ever done. And then that would be kind of an introduction to the world of the hiking holiday. If you were to go with a group of people that you're then in a low social optionality. Yeah. You know, hat tip to episode five, three or whatever it was. Five. Um, episode five, low optionality holiday, where you're now talking to these people who are all into hiking and outdoor holidays. Suddenly you are now exposing yourself to the sort of person. Yeah, who yeah, that. yeah, 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 exactly. That sort of thing. A very, very easy way of doing it. I think as well, like one thing that comes to mind is the first time I discovered the board game Articulate. Yeah. And realize that, you know, just like sitting around a circle and playing board games yeah, is board, really, board games really fun. Are fun and not lame. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> exactly. Because prior to that point, the only board games I'd seen was like Monopoly, which I'd always felt like, I mean, you're just rolling the dice or Ludo, which is literally just, yeah. you know, you could a random number generator and a computer, a computer could play it. Yeah. But like, you know, social board games like Articulate and then kind of expanding that a little bit more into these more talking deception type board games like Mafia and Avalon. Yeah. I was like, there's this whole world of board games. And then kind of that expands a bit further into this like eight hour long strategy board game where you're like super nerdy about it and analyzing every detail. Yeah. Just kind of expanding the box a little bit at a time from Ludo at the age of five, all the way up to through the ages that last until four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you're building your civilization and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, that was a big, a big change in my life when I discovered that. I'm quite curious as to like how life scripts have changed over time and stuff. And like, when did this current sort of broad life script of being focused around institutions of like, you know, school, university, then you join a company and like, you know, work your way up and all this kind of stuff, this sort of institutional life script. I wonder how long that's actually been going on. Um, I mentioned in a previous podcast that I've been reading a biography of the Wright brothers um, and you know, they're sort of late 1800s, early 1900s. We finished it, yeah. Uh, no, I have, I've been about halfway through it for a few months now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, like the amazing thing, the, one of the reasons I really, really liked it was that it just seemed like these guys, you know, were completely free from any script at all. Like they were such trailblazers, like not, not affected by the rest of society in the slightest. Like people thought they were absolutely insane. People didn't believe them. Like, and they were just like doing this thing completely unfazed. And even when they started getting attention and like social validation and stuff, they're still completely unfazed by it. They've, they've just, they were just doing their thing from day one and making it their own thing. And like this, this what seems to be a very independent life script. I thought that was really cool. Um, that I thought that was like a, a really cool part about them. But I, I wonder like what would have, 
what the prevalent life scripts would have been in their day. And I think probably in their day, things were things were probably less scripty. And it wasn't like... I, I, when were they wrong? Because I, I got the impression they were quite industrial revolutionary type, where it was all about kind of working in the factory, moving to the city, very much defined life script. Yeah, maybe. To be honest, I don't, I don't know too much about it. Um, but I think I'd be very interested to learn about yeah. the, the life scripts of, of the past. How life scripts evolve over time. Yeah, this is sort of like, um, there was an, an episode of the Art of Manliness podcast I was listening to yesterday on the train. Um, it was about a guy who wrote a book about life hacking and this whole life hacking movement. Um, talking about the industry of self-help and self-improvement and how that's changed over the years. And apparently the whole self-help thing was started in like the late 1800s as like a movement by the church in order to make people more spiritually aware. So self-help as a genre was all about how you can get closer to God. Oh, And then in the kind of Rockefeller and Carnegie era of like the mid 90s, early 90s, it was all about how you can kind of get rich through productivity and through the railroad system and all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and then kind of approaching the early 2000s, it, then it became more about um, how you can use digital tools in the 21st century in order to kind of improve your life in inverted commas. And then yeah. that kind of morphed into the quantified self-movement, which you've recently joined for trying to count your calories. Yeah. Now about, you know, life improvement through numbers. And it was really interesting hearing how just, you know, that, that particular genre of self-improvement, which is a thing that I'm super into, as everyone knows, um, has changed through the years. It's like, yeah, oh, it started yeah. off as like, way to get close to God. <laughs> who, who would have thought? <laughs> we'll probably find a self-full circle in uh, maybe a decade where, uh, yeah, everyone's uh, trying to get back its religion. <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> religion's going to make a, a comeback. Like, blogs have been making a comeback. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> cool, I think there's a lot to think about there on, with regards to life screw. I, yeah, I, I want to I wanna find out more about historical life scripts i'm going to try and do some digging and if if any listeners know any good sources for this that would be very interesting to know about okay so you know i like to end with actionable stuff so i suppose the thing that we said here is that widening it's not about stepping outside the box it's about expanding the box you can expand the box by exposing yourself to different experiences different sorts of people or you know by proxy you can do that by just listening to a lot of stuff um, or reading a lot of stuff by people who live alternative lifestyles and that then brings it within your own realm of what becomes what is normal. And something that's normal is then so much easier to do. Like, you know, if it was normal that you would just learn to code and start a business, you wouldn't be emailing me or Tame being like, how do I learn to code and start a business? You would just, you would just do it because it becomes a very, very normal thing. So yeah, one way of doing that is just expose yourself to lots of these ideas. And I suppose one thing that we're trying to do is expose ourselves to more novel ideas outside of the immediately adjacent sphere of tech bros and associated movements. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. Do we have any insights this week? I think I had, I think I said this last week as well. I had one and I was like, oh, that's a really good insight for the podcast. I didn't write it down. And uh, you didn't write it down. Why, why did you not write it down? I can't remember. All right. Okay. I think our insight of this week can be the importance of quick capture then, which is anytime you have an idea, you just like figure out a way to get it out of your head and onto a device of some sort. Some people carry around these little pocket notebooks with them. You know, we all have our phones with us at all times. I use the app Bear because, you know, even if you can shave off like five milliseconds off the process of getting an idea from your head into your phone, it just like makes the process so much nicer. Um, and I think I might have mentioned this before. I've bought like a little audio recorder thing for the car so that I don't have to open up voice notes on my phone. I can literally press a button on a physical voice recorder if I listen to something interesting in the car and I just be like, okay, I'm listening to episode 349 of the Tim Ferriss show. This is roughly at this timestamp. They've just talked about this. This is the idea that I've had. Oh, and wow, nice. Every, every so often, every few weeks, I would just like go through them and just transcribe those into Evernote. That's very cool. And that is like, you know, it's, it is all about quick capture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've actually started using Bear and I've started doing this thing where like, 
in my sort of in the buffer in between different activities uh, a lot of which are like meeting with people i'll sort of make notes about it so like after a social event you know on like the train home or something i'll like make notes about my thoughts during that event you know things like that or after like a business meeting i'll sort of uh, you know make notes immediately on bear afterwards um and actually i have remembered the insight that i was thinking of and uh it's kind of productivity related i, I realized that like most of the time that i waste happens in between other things and so um, you know, for example, I'll come back from the gym and instead of going straight into the shower, I'll just sit around for a bit. I'll be like, oh, you know, I've just, I've just had a workout or whatever. I'm, I'm going to sit, sit around. Um, and yeah, that is very easy to turn that sitting around for a couple of minutes into like half an hour wasted on your phone doing nothing. And so, for example, coming back from the gym, having a shower straight away kind of like gets rid of that buffer in between. And then I think, it's, I think there are some activities which are useful buffers that are time boxed. And so like making a cup of tea, you know, because I, I think in between activities, it's weird to go straight from one like intense thing to another different kind of intense thing, like straight from the gym and then like getting back to work immediately or something. Yeah. That's weird. You, you do need a buffer, right? Yeah. And I think like time boxed buffers are a really good solution. And I realized that that's actually what I've been doing for the past few years. Whenever I make a cup of tea, it's not really about the tea. It's about like the ritual of just spending a few minutes, not really doing anything and just, you know. But like having an activity to do rather than, you know what, I'm just gonna sit on the sofa and browse Instagram for a few, few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's not time boxed. Whereas making a cup of tea, it's gonna take like two to five minutes or something, right? And at that point, it's like, you've sort of reset yourself and you yeah. can do the next thing. And so like forcing yourself you know, it, it, I think it's important to have buffers in between activities, but forcing them to be time boxed, like, okay, I'm going to go to the gym and then have a shower and then do my work. Like the shower is like a pleasant kind of thing mm. that's like time boxed to <laughs> 20 minutes in my case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how long you spend in the shower, but it's time boxed. And uh, yeah, time boxed buffers in between activities is something that I've been thinking okay, about. Okay, that's a good idea. That might be the topic of today's newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, uh, I think that's it. Thanks a lot for listening, everyone. And see you next week. Yeah, thanks. Please do leave us a rating on the iTunes store if you happen to be listening on Apple device or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and we'll see you next week.